Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 71 of Coffee Talks with Mike. Stoked to be here with you all. And um, I'm kind of reeling right now. I just, uh, my my update for the day, let this day go down in history that for months, one of the high school students that I work with has been talking smack to me saying, oh, Mike, I know you're training for a marathon, but I'm a high school soccer player. I can beat you in a race. I said, well, how about you put on your racing shoes and let's see who's faster. And you can tell by the tone of my voice, I humbled this kid. And that was just two hours ago. So here we are uh, coming off the uh, endorphins of victory. I figured let's get this episode in. Let's get to talking about this book, Curveball. Um, by Peter Enns. Now, calling him Peter just seems so wrong. So Pete, oh, Pete. Uh, Pete was one of my Bible professors in undergrad, and Pete is wonderful. He's super snarky. Uh, he He's kind of, well, not kind of, he's the owner or creator or whatever of the organization, uh, the Bible for normal people. And the way that I would describe Pete is the most normal guy that happens to also be a Bible scholar. And so he's really good at kind of having his feet in both worlds of like being able to talk to everyday people while also having like the, I don't know, intellectual chops to be able to draw in these bigger, deeper ideas or however you want to talk about it. So uh, I kind of have this, uh, love hates, not the word, but a lot of his books that he's put out, like I already knew of, the stories in them, the concepts in them, because I took classes with Pete. Uh, I've, you know, chopped wood, got coffee, beer, whatever. So it's um, I'm like, not that I wouldn't spend the money on the book to support him, but I'm just not always like waiting at the door. Like, oh my gosh, this new book came out. I have to go get it. But I was at my local bookshop, shop local, and uh, I saw his new book and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Let me get that. And I've really been enjoying it. I, I now I feel like I'm getting old because I don't just look at books and judge them by their covers. Though this cover is pretty cool, I like the color scheme. I looked at the chapter titles in the table of contents, and that made me excited for the book. Which what sounds dorkier than that, right? Um, but let me just read you a few. And he's dedicated the book for his his uh, grandson, which is so sweet. Chapter titles, Abundant Life, True Purpose, I Love the Bible, Just Not That Way, A New Normal, Adjusting for Jesus, The Blink of an Eye, Just When You Thought You Had the Bible Figured Out, The Other 99%, Other People, Ill, Quantum Weirdness, Quantum Godness, Thin Places and Thin People, and Catching Glimpses. And I was like, ooh, interesting. And I knew the concept of the book from the subtitle. Subtitles are very important. And I, I can tell that Pete has taken a page out of Rob Bell's book, which is not only having like a long subtitle, but having like four subtitles. So the title of this book is called Curveball. When your faith takes turns, you never saw coming. Asterisk. Or how I stumbled and tripped my way to finding a bigger God. So I'm not going to spend today like going like, oh, like chapter by chapter as I usually do, because I'm already I'm about three quarters of the way through this book. Um and it's been enjoyable, but I just want to give you some of the big picture highlights um, as we uh, I'll catch you up to speed. I, I think 
well, I guess with any book, if you like anything you hear, you should go check it out. But if you're someone that has struggled with your perception of God changing as you get older or as you ask new questions or as you've read more books and you go, hmm, something about this new thing I've learned is making the old things I held to not seem to work anymore. That's exactly what this book is about. Uh, Pete's a huge baseball fan. This is not a critique of Pete. This is a critique of baseball. Um, So he's using the curveball metaphor, right? Uh, Like a a pitch. I'm I'm out of my element here, but you know, the pitch that just kind of, it looks like it's going to do one thing. And at the last minute it curves, it changes it. It, I don't know, uh, subverts your expectations and then hopefully strikes you out. And you can't really plan for them except that you're, I guess, well, this would be interesting to hear him say, he didn't say this, but I guess if you're a batter and you kind of got to plan for the curveball, right? You got to expect it to then hit it. And maybe he gets that in the book. I don't know. I haven't finished it. Um, but the point of the curveball analogy that he really plays up and uses baseball in general to talk about some of these other uh, life metaphors, we'll say, is uh, there are things that you can't plan for in faith. And so some of the big ideas from the early, uh, well, we'll just say preface in the first chapter, is that, you know, growing up, like he was raised with these Christian values. And um, obviously there are things that come with that that are wonderful, but also things that are challenging. And um, I'll say this is from the end of the preface. And I I just think that there are important, the preface is giving you a glimpse into what the rest of the book is going to be. So I just want to read this chunk that'll give you a good summary of where the book's going. And then I'll talk about you know, the chapters themselves. Uh, So this is from the preface. He says, the big lesson I learned from wrestling with my own curveballs in faith is how deeply my faith in God has been cemented in fear, which is to say how I viewed God as very much antagonistic towards me. And so any thought of, uh, on my part, of listening to my experience and my interrogating of my inherited faith to inspect its boundaries, let alone climb over its walls, was seen as a crisis that had to be averted or at least resolved immediately. This resonates with me a lot. Uh, And again, I I think you all know me well enough now at this point to know I'm not like attacking or like starting some war with my church that I was brought up in or anything like that. But certainly the faith I was brought up in was cemented in fear. And Pete's talking about that. He's like, all these curveballs in my faith, all the questions that, that wrecked me almost, it it was because my perception of God and my faith in God was cemented in fear, thinking that God is antagonistic toward me. And and I realized this in the last three years of my own life, and I am continuing to realize and work through this mentality, is I know that I, I don't logically believe God is antagonistic toward me, but sometimes I do believe it practically. And what I mean is like, I know that like theologically and in my brain, as I think about the attributes of God and I remind myself that these scriptures, like who God is, who God says God is, who Jesus reveals God to be. I don't believe God's antagonistic towards us. And yet practically I find myself viewing 
God as like I wake up in the morning and I'm already at best neutral and everything I do in the day is either a tally for me or a tally against me. And at the end of the day, God's looking at the tallies and going, man, you messed up again today, but don't worry. Grace is good and we'll start again tomorrow. And I don't believe that that's how God is in relationship with us, but it's this kind of fear, guilt, shame, antagonistic perception of how God operates. And it's got a large part to do with the way that I was raised in church. And I don't mean by my parents, but just theological views and not even necessarily overtly, but subconsciously things that people are putting into us. And like Pete says, uh, he says, when these questions and these interrogations and these boundaries are being observed, the only coping set of skills that you're taught is to avert that crisis as fast as possible, to resolve those questions immediately. And sometimes what that leads to is really cheap, unsettling answers. So he goes on, he says, but over time I came to see that this is precisely the wrong attitude to take. I agree. It's just the fear crisis model of faith where all things have to fall into place or else was simply no match for my raw, complex, messy, out-of-control existence. We know that life is not as easy to put into boxes and systems as, as we would like it to be. He says, and this got me thinking differently about God. If the infinite God of the cosmos is real, let that first half of the sentence just marinate with you for a second. If the infinite God of the cosmos is real. <laughs> Anecdote. I think I told this story before, maybe you didn't hear the episode. My pastor preached a sermon about, um, I think it was about Pentecost, but just about how there were 3,000 people baptized that day. And he was just doing the math. He's like, if our if our sanctuary was filled to the brim, it'd be about 300 people. He's like, imagine if we baptized every single person in the sanctuary in one morning, we'd have to do it 10 times to get to 3,000. And it was just this realization that our brains can't, comprehend numbers properly like at scale because you think about that i'm like oh my goodness like 10 con like sanctuaries full or you hear about how many people can fit into like this football stadium or how many people were at this i don't know uh concert or whatever it is and you go oh yeah eighty thousand. you're like no eighty thousand people when we say there's like 8 billion people on earth you're like oh yeah 8 billion that's a lot of people but there's a lot of earth and it's like no 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 eight billion when you learn how much bigger a billion is than a million it, it's just hard to wrap our mind around so let's go back to the first half of this sentence if the infinite god infinite beyond time unmeasurable infinite our brains like we read that word and we're like oh yeah infinite no infinite infinite in a way that like we can't begin to comprehend God. If the infinite God of the cosmos, cosmos is more understandable than infinite. Infinite, simple. You go, okay, infinite, like timeless, okay, beyond. Cosmos, we at least can go, oh yeah, we look through telescopes sometimes. We know there's stars out there and planets and space and galaxies. And we just casually say, oh yeah, there's a bunch of galaxies. Yeah, lots of galaxies. We're in the Milky Way, but there's a bunch of others. Are we serious? We're on Earth. And there's all these other planets in our galaxy. 
and the sun and gravity and stars and constellations. And that's all just this galaxy. Like we can't, most people don't travel outside of their state or their country. And we're like, oh yeah, there's other planets. Oh yeah, the cosmos, it's a big place. Really? If the infinite God of the cosmos is real, surely God understands my puny humanity and sees my questions and struggles as more than a nuisance. Pete's saying, if God is really as godlike as we say, if God is as big and beyond and, and unbelievable as we say, then God understands better than any of us can how puny and infinitesimally small we are, not just compared to the cosmos, but our brains, our ability to comprehend, our, our capacity to embrace the infinite. And God sees our struggles and our questions, and they're more than a nuisance. They're more than, than just annoyances. He says, it would take years for me to truly accept the idea that my disruptive experiences are not outside impositions to or an attack on my faith, but they're the soil out of which my faith matures and takes shape. All of these questions, all of these disruptive experiences that we have in our lives, it's the soil in which the seeds of faith are planted. And so he asks the question, can I really ignore my experiences, ignore the way that I encounter reality? Can any of us? Is this really what God expects of us? And if we ignore them, if you think about it, if you ignore the experiences with reality that you have, then what is left of, of you? What's left of us? If we have to keep on saying, okay, this is what you see, but that's not really what you're seeing. Okay, we get that. There's things beyond what we physically see, but oh, oh, and your experiences, those aren't really it either. That's just a piece. It's just a little part, but, but ignore them. If your experience is just the complete opposite of this, this platitude you're being told, your experience is what's wrong. No. And, and Pete's whole point in the book is, Life throws you curveballs because you have one way of seeing the world, one way of seeing God, one way of seeing faith, one way of seeing fill in the blank. And then you have experiences that are to the contrary of everything you thought you had figured out. It says, rather than the fear-based model, he said, I've leaned towards a curious, hopeful model. That model is built on seeing God as a relentless, compassionate inner presence in my life always beckoning me forward. That model is one of peace, curiosity, and hopefulness and rests on my embrace of the mystery and love of God. He ends with this, I'm seeking to live into the sacred space of God's presence with curiosity, hope, peace, and love of others. And I believe this is the type of relationship God seeks to have with us. That's the preface. I think that's a great setup for everything that that Pete wants to tackle in this book, at least from what I've been able to see. Um, so we'll jump into chapter one, probably get to at least chapter two or three. Um, good chapter one, he, he's using these examples again from baseball. He talks about getting his first blown elbow and things like that. Um, he says this, this is page six. He says, 
To be honest, God has never felt as dependable as the rhythms of, of baseball and has often proved more frustrating. At least in baseball, you have some predictability, some consistency, some clear and unimpeachable boundaries. Three strikes, you're out. Three outs aside, and the team with the most runs win. But as I'd come to find out, God doesn't seem to have any predictability, consistency, or clearly defined structure, despite what I'd been taught to think. So we know this intuitively, right? Okay, we've got rules to baseball. Here's how you play the game. Okay, you're breaking the rules. You need to sit out. You're breaking the rules. You're disqualified. Three strikes, you're out. Okay, got it. Even the rules that we say, and let's just take the word rule out and say the theological doctrines that we espouse that I think are important, by the way, sometimes it seems like God does not abide by those same theological doctrines that we hold to be true. Sometimes, despite believing this doctrine to be crucial to how we understand God, it seems from the examples in Scripture, God acts in the opposite way. There are plenty of countertexts and counterpoints made throughout biblical uh, stories to say the opposite point. So an easy example is uh, saying that God never changes except for all of the times in the Bible where God seems to change God's mind. And there are ways that theologians wrestle with those texts and try to explain them away, and I think that some of them are valid, but we have to, at least on the surface, say, right, so this doctrine of uh, impassibility, uh, maybe it's not necessarily as clear-cut as we thought. Maybe it's not as predictable or consistent or clearly defined as we thought. Perhaps it's because we're talking about an infinite God larger than the cosmos, right? But Pete's general point in this first chapter is, yeah, we have to shift our perception because if our expectation of God is one thing and it seems like God does the opposite, your option is either to throw God out entirely or to shift your perspective. The book is all about shifting your perspective. And so he goes on a little bit, um, and uh, this is page 11, he says, this is after some of these injuries and these big questions. He said, the content of faith was considered to be fairly straightforward in his upbringing. God's relationship with humans was basically transactional. Human sin and God punishes sinners. God has to because God hates sin so much. But then Jesus stepped in and took the punishment for us, our side of the transaction. Our only obligation was to accept that Jesus already did this and really mean it, so that when we die, we go to heaven rather than burn in hell for eternity. Um, so, and, and then in the meantime, we're uh, either waiting to die or for Jesus' second coming, which could happen at any moment. Um, so we had to work very hard to make sure we live lives worthy of people who have Jesus in their hearts. Um, and he's saying, yeah, this is all part of the story that we were told. This is part of the, the framework we were given. Um, but this framework doesn't really give you the tools you need to wrestle with those experiences that seem contrary to the different principles and platitudes. He says, I was an intellectually curious person, and some pieces of this framework never came together for me. About a year after my conversion, my initial excitement began to wane, and I started having questions about the logic of this and the logic of that. And the logic of these church teachings, he says, but the only way the church equipped me to deal with doubts was to raise my hand and get saved again, seeing as the first one didn't seem to take, 
didn't seem to set in properly. And I can definitely like attest to this kind of experience. Again, I'm not saying this is all churches, but certainly I know and I saw plenty of times where the same people would raise their hands at a camp or at a youth group or at a church service and the altar call to go like, all right, I want to go get saved. Because clearly, if you still had doubts, like, well, then you really didn't love Jesus the first time. Like, you thought you did. And this is where it all starts to fall apart, right? Okay, all you have to do is confess Jesus as Lord and you'll be saved. Okay, so you raise your hand, you go up, you pray the sinner's prayer, whatever your church model is. Okay, which I don't think that that's the process, but let's just say it is. So now you're you're good. You said the words. You, I mean, you felt it enough that you raised your hand in public to say, I, I want to get this figured out today. You go up, you pray it, and then you go home. And three weeks later, they start doing the same kind of altar call. If you died today, do you know where you'd go? And you go, oh my gosh, I'm not sure. I'm not confident. Like, I know I prayed the thing and I said, if you pray it, then you're good. But I still feel this, this, I don't know what I feel. It, it's this weight. It's this concern. It's this, ugh, I better just go do it again. And they go, yeah, it's a good thing you came up and did it again. Because, you know, I guess last time you kind of wanted to, but you didn't really do it. Even though you initiated, even though you raised your hand, even though you went up and you said the exact words they said to say, and they said, you better really mean it. And you're like, I really mean it. But then three weeks later, when you're still feeling guilt or shame or questions or doubt or whatever, the only answer they have is, well, raise your hand and go do it again. And hopefully this time it's the real deal. But then there's never any certainty, right? So it, it's a fascinating mentality until one day you just decide, all right, yeah, like it's it's real this time. Or one day you get confident enough to just pretend not to feel those feelings anymore. And that's the kind of thing Pete's got his, his finger on the pulse of. He says, I got to this place, I couldn't explain it all away. I couldn't make up good excuses for this God. Doubt and disillusionment were beginning to take root, along with resentment and anger, and most of all, just plain sadness. He's talking about this in light of the fact that his elbow had popped and like he was just done, like this injury. And the thing that he loved most in baseball as a kid, as a young adult, like it seemed like it was over. And if God knew him, God loved him, God was with him, when he was going through this darkness, why was God seemingly a no-show? And when he had these questions and he was asking for God to, to show him the way, why was God not showing the way? Because all the frameworks he was given was live the right life, do the right things, and then God will bless you, which is essentially, if not clearly, the prosperity-type gospel. Do the right things and then get the right things. Well, Pete got a curveball. We all know what this curveball is like. And so he says, my faith crisis wasn't just about God as much as it was about how I expected God to show up. And he says, I came to understand that my understanding of God was not adequate for handling reality. Hear that sentence again. My understanding of God was not adequate to handle reality. Not saying God wasn't adequate, my understanding of God. Remember that phrase from before, the infinite God of the cosmos. And we think that we have whittled God down to these clear-cut terms that we can put God into this box to say, God will do X and will not do X because we know the answers. It turns out some of the answers we think we know 
we might only know in part. When we're talking about infinity, it seems that finite people can only get a glimpse of what infinity is. We can define it, but not really. Like, we know what it is, but we don't really experience it the way that it fully is. And so Pete's whole point is saying, my understanding of infinity wasn't adequate enough to handle the reality I was experiencing. That's important. When we say that God is love, and we look at the world around us and we don't see love, now you have to ask the question, well, why is there not love? Or better yet, when we say that Christians are called to love and we see Christians doing the opposite of that, the people that espouse to follow this infinite loving God, what do we do with that? What do we do when reality seems contrary to the things we believe about God? Either it was never God, God was never those things, we were wrong, or our understanding of God has to shift. And so Pete says, he's uh, talking about needing to make adjustments um, to how he thinks about God and how to think about faith. And it's never easy, or at least he can say it wasn't easy for him, but he says these two small steps are where he began. He says, first, it was processing with people I trusted. That was huge. He said, even if their experiences didn't perfectly match mine, it was just having people that he could trust to share these experiences with. He says, second, I expanded my community another way by reading books to help me grasp a vision of the Christian faith that understood God differently from what I'd been exposed to. That last part is very important. Giving me vision of the faith that ex that was different than what I'd been exposed to. Think about cultural exposure. I'm just talking about, I think sometimes word culture is just so ridiculously limited and it's probably because of political tensions we're talking the community you grew up in not just the the uh like the wealth or the ethnicity but how about the denomination how about the county that you live in how about the state that you live in or the country that you live in how about the time period you live in like you hear culture and it's all oh, the culture war right now, the, the battle of ideology. How about the battle of ideology between the 2020s and the 1950s? How about the 1950s and the 1650s? There are different perceptions of God all throughout church history. And it, it sounds belittling to say this to some people that have never really looked at church history because it sounds really boring to look at church history. But these aren't all new questions that we're having. These aren't new uh, issues necessarily. We wrestle with things in the context in which we exist, but people have been wrestling with faith in all kinds of different contexts. They have lived under corrupt governments. They have lived under persecution where they've been put to death. They've lived in places where Christians were absolute lunatics. They've lived in places where people couldn't read. They've lived in places where there was this utter poverty lived in places that had never heard the name Jesus or read a Bible or any of these things all throughout church history. And that's just since Jesus, they go before Jesus with like, you know, Israel history. And I mean, we're just in this place where there's so much culture to understand. And this, going back to Pete's phrase here, I started reading books that helped me grasp a vision of this Christian faith that was understood differently than what I had been exposed to. A lot of times when I talk to people, particularly that identify as literalists or some version of that, 
They said, well, I just want to read the Bible like for what it is. I just want to like, just me and Jesus. I don't need all these other influences, all these other voices, but here's the thing. It shift your posture. It's not about like looking for the smartest voice, smartest podcast, smartest commentary, smartest pastor, because you need their voice to make it all make sense. Now, it is not a bad thing to look to people that are more trained than you uh, and ask them for help. That's part of any discipline, right? I don't want the heart surgeon that's like, I didn't listen to any professors or books. I'm just going to kind of go with what I feel is right about heart surgery, right? At some point, you need to learn from someone that is more learned than you, okay? That's a humility piece. But when you're studying scripture, when you're studying theology, and and, and it may, I don't want to reduce it to academia, right? I don't want to make it just like, oh, do your book work. When you're wrestling with the faith, it's not about finding someone that's got all the answers for you. That's the danger. Is like, let me just go trust this other person, right? This is the, the unfair critique of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Oh, you guys just think the Pope has all the answers. Like, that's so dumb. The Pope's just a person. And then they turn around and go like, yeah, my pastor says this, so that must be the truth. I think most Protestant churches operate functionally the same way that Catholics do. They're just in denial about it. Uh, and to be clear, not how I think Catholics believe that they function and but how they are colloquially or stereotypically referred to. I think a lot of Protestant people treat their pastors like the Pope, unless they really don't like them. But if they like their pastor, they're like, oh yeah, like he said it, so it must be true. She said it, must be true. And it's like, these are really difficult, complicated questions, difficult, complicated realities to come into encounter with. And so when Pete's talking about looking at this, this perspective of faith, that's different than what you've been exposed to, you have to recognize, even if you never read a Bible commentary, even if you don't go to a church, if you just pick up your Bible and start reading it right now, 2023, when this is being recorded, you're already being influenced by voices. You're already being influenced by theologians, Bible scholars, pastors that you've never met because it's part of our cultural identity as a community of human beings. You could be no Christian, never step foot in a church, but because you live in 2023 and you've been raised in in the community of 2023, wherever you live, there are certain expectations about how logic functions. There are certain expectations about how uh, Greek philosophers had viewed reality up to this point. There are certain ways that we process information that all influences how you are reading anything. When you think about your faith, there are theologians that have influenced your pastor that they might not even know about. There are debates that were had for hundreds of years that were already argued out and settled for a thousand years before they ever picked up a Bible, before they were ever born. And so when we say, oh yeah, that's what the Bible says, it's just clear, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Duh, didn't you read your Bible? Yeah, so did everyone else in the first 300 years of the church. And they debated the whole time, who is Jesus? Is he a demigod? Is he half God, half man? Is he God sometimes and man the other times? Was he God for like 30 years and then became a man? Like, Or was he man for 30 years and then became God? It is not clear. When we start talking about the doctrine of Trinity, it, it's not, oh yeah, well, duh, like just read the Bible. It's just so clear. It's like, dude, you have to be exposed to perceptions of the faith that you've never seen before because your way is limited by you. You are small, puny, finite. We're talking about the infinite God of the cosmos. And people just go, oh, yeah, well, like, 
just read your Bible and it's just clear there. And of course, I, I, I would just totally agree. Reading your, your Bible, being in prayer, devoting yourself to spiritual disciplines are going to all draw you closer to God. But if that's all it took, if all you could do was just sit in your room alone and figure it out on your own, then why would we ever have disagreements? The inherent understanding and perception in that kind of idea is, oh, well, like I did it right. And everyone else in their room reading their Bible, praying alone, they tried, but they misheard God. If that was really all it took was to just read your Bible and and never listen to any other voices, I don't need those commentators, theologians, pocket, I don't need any of that. It's me. I, I've got this. God will give me the answer. Then why is everyone coming up with different answers? The assumption is everyone else is either lying or misunderstanding God, but not me. I'm good. I've got it. You've got to be exposed to new ways, different ways, different cultural ways, different uh, uh, interpretive ways to understand this faith. And the sooner you can understand and humbly admit that you don't have it all figured out, that you are not infinite, that you have, do not have all the answers, that your understanding of God is not perfect, that it's limited, the sooner you can begin to share in this community of faith and ask questions together and answer questions together. We've never been called to do this alone. Going back to Pete, I'll get off my sermon now. He says, interrogating our ideas about God is vital for a healthy faith in the world we live in. We have to interrogate these ideas. He says, adjustments to the ideas are what are absolutely necessary because of our limited understanding of an infinite God. He says, adjustments are good. Adjustments are inevitable. Adjustments are evidence of growing faith. Sometimes we think if we adjust our idea about God, it means that we are changing. And I do think there is a good thing about the hesitancy to adjustment because sometimes people hear something like adjustment and they think, oh, you mean throw out everything that used to be here. You mean throw out all of church history. You mean throw out tradition. You mean, no, 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 no. You have to recognize if we look at church history, if we look at the history of theology, it's all adjustment. And that's what Pete gets to throughout the book. He's like, look at all these times there's been adjustments. We used to think this until we realized, dude, we got that so wrong. Time to adjust. And then we pretend like that didn't happen. It's so preposterous. Adjustments mean that we are actively seeking God out. We're listening. And yes, even with the right intentions, right heartbeat, all of those things, we might believe we're in the right place and get it wrong. And that's why we have to continually be open to the adjustments. He says, adjusting our understanding of God isn't a sign of weak faith, and it's not an attack on faith. Adjusting our understanding of God is faith. The circumstances that bring us to face our small understanding of God are marked by real loss and pain that will come to us in varying intensities and durations. But after the loss and pain, indeed because we've experienced loss and pain, we may also catch glimpses of a grander vision of God, where God is beyond our control, beyond the inadequate convictions that carried us through the earlier seasons, beyond the claim of absolute, unquestioned religious formulations, beyond any limitation we place on God, intentionally or not. It's a God whose ways 
to echo Paul, are inscrutable and whose mind cannot be known, a God who surpasses all understanding. Our job in all this is to try to be willing to stay awake to what our experiences are telling us about this better God and to make adjustments when necessary. Ironically, the big obstacle that got in the way of my doing just that was my own religious tradition. So that's where we begin. That was the final paragraph of the first chapter from Pete. Recognizing adjusting isn't a sign of a weak faith or an attack on faith, but that it is faith is so crucial. I'm going to actually end because I did tell you in the State of the Union, number one, that I'm going to try to make these episodes shorter and more digestible. So I'm just going to leave it there. Preface chapter one. Obviously, you can hear me getting a little ramped up over here. I think this is great. I think it's a really good setup. I'd like to do one more episode minimum to kind of summarize a few chapters. Um, But it's just important to recognize that sometimes when we think about these adjustments and we think about changing our ideas, it can be overwhelming. Like, oh my goodness, then everything I thought was wrong and like, was my whole life a lie up to this point? Was it a waste of time? No, 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 no. Like sometimes you only have the capacity for one part of a thing. Sometimes you can only process the simple addition, subtraction, division, multiplication, and you need those basic tools so that you can go do algebra later. But every kid that's ever taken algebra in middle school goes, why do I ever need to know what that Y equals MX plus B? And you just learn these formulas and you learn them and you learn them and you learn them. And then you start learning geometric formulas. And you're like, how do I find, you know, the sine and cosine? And then eventually you start taking calculus and you're like, oh, this is horrible. Why would anyone do this for fun? Some people are like, I like puzzles. And you're like, okay, well, uh, go get a job with puzzles. I don't want to do this. And then you start doing physics. And then you realize learning algebra, learning the physics eventually could get you a job at NASA and you could get us to space. And you go, really? And you go, you know what you need to be able to start working at NASA? You know what you needed to start with? Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. You need to learn how to count. You need to learn PEMDAS, order of operations. These basic things, it's not that they're necessarily untrue. It's that when you put them next to the infinite understanding of mathematics, things that seem like completely out of our control, the things that we we just never would understand. If you don't have a friend that is like a real big math nerd, like I've got some friends that have masters in mathematics, go find one. Let them talk to you for 12 minutes about math and why they think it's amazing, and you'll know what I'm talking about. You need the simplest basic understanding over here so that you can build on it to comprehend some of these greater mysteries later. And it doesn't mean that these earlier things were necessarily wrong. It means you have to adjust how they work in the broader understanding. You have to adjust as time goes on, not to throw out the stuff that came before, but to recontextualize it, reinterpret it in light of experience, in light of reality, in light of the things that you know to be true because you're living it. Your God is infinitely bigger than you will ever be able to comprehend. Our God is is so much more than we can ever wrap our minds around. And yet, in the person of Jesus, we believe that infinite came in the form of a man and revealed reality to us. That something about Jesus on earth has revealed 
where some of the adjustments need to be made. That's the entire interaction with the Pharisees. You've heard that it was said this, but I tell you that. Oh, you know that wall? Good job. You completely misunderstood it. This is why infinity came down into the finite form of a man. So I could let you know, you got that one wrong. Oh, you thought this is what the meaning of life was? No, 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 no. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then it'll grow. Oh, you thought it was about being the most pious person in the room, knowing the most scriptures, knowing how to pray in public? Actually, <laughs> newsflash, uh, it's not about that. At every turn, adjustments are crucial. And even in the person of Jesus, for the short time in the grand scheme of human history that we had Jesus on earth, we got these glimpses into the infinite, glimpses into the mystery of God, glimpses into what, what is the heart of God really. Heart of God is apparently weeping with us when our best friends pass away. The heart of God is is sitting amongst people that society has ostracized. The heart of God is loving not just our friends, not just our family, not just our neighbors, but loving our enemies. We go, okay, love your enemies. No, no, no. Love your enemies. I mean, you can't get more absurd than that. Love your enemies? Okay, like the guy that like cut you off in traffic, I should be loving. No, we're talking about the person that just talks smack about you every day, the person that physically attacks you. I mean... Where is the limit? Where's the boundary for loving your enemy? We're talking about this glimpse of God, glimpse of the infinite in Jesus. We go, okay, forgiveness, that's a good thing. And Jesus says, no, 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 forgive seven times, 70 times. And they go, oh, you mean like a math problem? Like I should like 490 times and after that, don't forgive anymore? We're like, <laughs> we're back to that problem of you thought you got it, but you didn't get it. You, you memorized the concept, got the multiplication down, but you missed it entirely. Faith is about adjustment. Faith is looking at curveballs and planning for curveballs, planning that there's a certain amount of paradox, a certain amount of mystery, a certain amount of surprise that is just built into the human experience because we are trying to commune with an infinite God. And we can either cling to these rigid ways of understanding reality or open ourselves up to the beautiful mystery that is relationship with this God. So I'm going to stop preaching out of Pete's book and uh, leave you all with that. That's uh, the preface in chapter one of Curveball by Pete Enns. Uh, feel free to grab it, check it out, and uh, talk to you soon next week. Coffee Talks with Mike. All right, got to go.